Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we are meeting with Leslie Graham, Chief Human Resources Officer at Groups Recover. How are you? Doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us here. I'm so excited to dive in. I think we should start here. And I'm really excited to talk about this because mental health and wellness and health in general is just such an important topic in our employee base, with our employees, just in the world. So I'm really excited. Let's talk about it. Groups Recover Together. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization before we dive into your experience? Sure. So Groups Recover Together is an amazing organization. I've had the pleasure of being a part of this mission where we serve over 23,000 members throughout the United States. And our members receive group structured medication assisted treatment. They are struggling with opioid addiction. And so we provide resources and we provide support to those working on their recovery journey. Wow, such an important thing. We know that the proliferation of opioid use and the need for care has grown over the past decade. It's great to hear organizations taking a part and helping and try to push back on the momentum there. I'm interested, how did you get involved in HR in the first place? And then what drew you to Groups Recover Together? I got into HR with a little bit of a mistake, actually. So I was working in retail and I was a retail manager and was really focused on driving sales and running operations. And one of the pieces of feedback I received was stop hanging out with the team so much and focus on the business. And that's when I realized I really wanted to be in HR. So. I love focusing on talent and developing the team and really understanding the culture of why the business is running, but why the business is focused on culture and how we get the team motivated to move the business forward. So that's how I fell into HR. And as far as how I got to groups recover together, I was recruited by the organization and just fell in love with the mission. Every single person I met, whether they had been directly impacted by our member or indirectly impacted by our members, was passionate about the mission and wanted to help people. And so I really became connected with the mission. I don't have anyone directly in my life, but indirectly in my life, I am impacted. And so it's just important to me to be involved in the community. And this is my way of doing it. I love that. Going back to how you got into HR, when are people going to realize that the people are the business? You cannot have the business without the people. So being ingrained in what the people want and how you develop them and attract them and retain them, that is the business at the end of the day. That's, That's right. how companies make money. So I'm grateful that you took that and ran with it and has led to obviously a prosperous HR career. One of the things that we talked about in our pre-call was you're really passionate about coaching and helping people, like helping people get unstuck in particular. I'm interested. Can you give an example of a time where you helped maybe an employee or a team member or family member, somebody get unstuck and what were the results for them? Sure. I mean, I have so many examples, but one person I can think of in particular, I was working with back in my retail days at Target. She loved what she was doing, really excited about the work that she was doing, but just felt like it wasn't her calling. She just wasn't going anywhere and the passion was gone. 
she just knew HR was it, but maybe it wasn't in retail. And this particular individual through coaching, I really believed in her, but through many conversations, just realized that she was stuck because of some of the other parts of her life. Sometimes we're in a career and we love what we're doing, but if you don't have yourself in totality balance, then it's hard to really focus on your career and it's hard to focus in other areas. So I think of her because she's still in my life today and I've recruited her in almost every position that I've been in after Target and it's still a really important part and colleague in my life today and she's doing great things. So the moral of that story is sometimes when you think that one part of your life is going great and you still can't find yourself, it's really important to like take some time to assess what's going on in some of those other areas and get unstuck and everything starts to fall in line. I love that. I mean, we talk a lot about hiring the whole person here at MSH when we bring somebody into our organization. And that's because this whole thought and idea of like, leave it at home, leave it at the doorstep. You come in here, you punch the clock and you got to focus on work. If we're worried about our people, if we're worried about their productivity, if we want to put them in a position where they're best able to be successful, it's impossible to compartmentalize what might be going on at home, what might be going on in their lives, right? And I think there's a line there, right? But I also think it's important to be empathetic and be understanding and know that a lot of times when somebody is not their best self at work, 90% of the time, it's not because of organizational structure or the challenge right. of the work or anything like that. It might be about something that the work environment has no control over. Understanding that, being aware of that, being empathetic to that, I think is important to build a long-lasting, sustainable, employee-focused culture. And so I love to hear that. And listen, I've been in situations where I'm having an issue at home or there's something going on with my house insurance or I'm worried about some sort of thing with my child at school. I'm not my best self at work. It's just impossible sometimes. I think it's also important as a person to be self-aware about that and be able to recalibrate and then give yourself a little bit of grace in those situations too. So you spent 20 years in the HR space and you moved your way up. And I know one of the big reasons, obviously, the new role stood out is because you got that C-level title, that Chief Human Resources Officer title. So I'm interested for people who are maybe in a VP position and looking to take that big step up to the CHRO role. What have you learned? What surprised you? What are some of the things that are different from a VP to a Chief Human Resources Officer that you might let people know about so they can get some insight and visibility into that if they haven't made that jump themselves? There's no training for a C-level role, so the buck stops with you. And I think it's really important for people to understand that even when you think you're ready, when you start the role, you're not ready. (laughs) You think you know what you're doing, but you're not ready. Sure. And then when you have your team and you have your first deliverable and someone says, so what's your strategy? It's like that's when the epiphany opens and you think, oh my goodness, what is my strategy? Do I know what I'm doing? And I've had many of those moments in my first year. Someone tells you they don't, they're lying. And so I think what I've learned is, I know it sounds easy, but do a lot of listening. And it's really important to think through. The impact is so important of the decisions that you're making because the ripple effect is major and the strategic component of the decisions that you're making is major. But it's also important that you have this well-balanced decision-making strategy as well, because you can't think about just one area of the business. You have to be a business partner. You've got to think about the revenue. You have to think about the people. You have to think about the timeliness of the decision and how the folks in the field are going to feel about it and how are they going to respond to it and the messaging and the face and the voice of that decision. So all of those things are happening and you have to make several decisions at the same time. And all in all, you have to be confident and just know that wherever it lands, you've got to be able to handle it. So It's a balance of being able to just be black and white and nimble and gray at the same time. 
and be okay with your voice, no matter how it shows up. And one analogy that I always use is the swan analogy. Just stay cool, right? If you see a swan in the water, just keep floating. You may be flustered as all get out of the water, but just stay cool because everyone's watching the CHRO at all times when it comes to culture. I love that. I mean, you have such a responsibility, not just to your team in HR, but to, like you said, to the rest of the organization, you're supporting all of the employees within the organization. I'm interested, what in your mind does the optimal HR organization look like for the rest of the business? Like, how are they interacting? Who are they interacting with? What are the things they're focusing on? Like, I got to imagine that you get feedback from the business all the time. What is it that they're looking for? And what do you think is kind of the optimal balance of what an HR function should be doing to push an organization forward? That's a great question. I think the optimal HR team is really that of respect and honesty and transparency. We're not a yes team. We're the team that does the right amount of Thing, but also the right amount of challenging when it comes to a business and people decision. Mm. And so we want to have a seat at the table. And many times we may not be asked, but we may be expected to show up with a response to what's being shared at the table. Mm. And many times when we share, they don't necessarily like what we have to say. Sure. But it's expected that the opinion is shared at the table. And most times I've found that our opinion and our perspective is appreciated and most times considered post-meeting. That's when it makes a difference. I love that. You have to be that balance. I'll think about our HR organization. I like to think that I'm a pretty people-first, empathetic CEO. <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> and I will tell you that our HR organization, our head of HR, sometimes I refer to her as Jiminy Cricket because like a lot of times they are the conscience of when you're just thinking of things from a strictly ones and zeros perspective and a business perspective, it's like, hold on, let's think about the impact of the people here. Let's think about That's how right. this might come across. Let's think about the messaging here. There's importance to this stuff, right? And sometimes the other business minds can get running too fast and only thinking about an objective. And it's really important to have that balance. And that's why HR doesn't only need a seat at the table. They need to have a voice and a voice that is heard. And like if it's post-meeting, current in the meeting, whatever it is, it needs to be valued. And I think the best organizations understand that. The best CEOs know that, in my opinion. That's right. They always bring them along. It's important. To take this a little personal aside, we talked about how you have three daughters, just like yes. I do. Your oldest is 17. Mine is 12. I need some advice. What the hell do I have to be worried about over the next five years? What, what should I be looking for? Because I know the problems change <laughs> in magnitude as they get older. So what would you tell me is giving me advice for someone entering their teenage years? Oh my goodness. I would have to say, you need to stay hip. You need to stay cool. Oh yeah. I got tons of riz. I got tons of riz. <laughs> you have to make sure they come to you. You have to stay cool. That's the best part. But I think it's just continue to talk to them because I mean, I love that my girls still come to me and talk to me about whatever. Sometimes I wish they wouldn't because of the things that I hear that come out of their mouth, but I love it because we're close and I understand what they're going through. But my goodness, this world is crazy right now. And to have a good relationship with your kids is the most important relationship of all, to be honest. And so just keep talking to them even when it's uncomfortable. That's all I can say. Yeah. I got some work to do. They tell me I'm cringe every other week. I don't think that's the cool dad. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. At least I'm not being called sus. That would be even worse as far as I understand. I got to do more research, though. I'll look into it. <laughs> but here's what I would say. You know, it's tough as a parent, if you want your children to open up to you, right? Yeah. You have to sometimes fight your first reaction, right? So like they'll come say something that I don't love or I don't like, or I wish they weren't thinking that way or saying or doing these types of things. But I know if my first response is coming down on them, 
that's going to lessen them coming to me in the future. And who knows what you might miss if you don't build that like, type of trust and rapport. So my wife has done a fantastic job with that. I think I've done a pretty good job with that, but based on the amount of times I've been called cringe, I got some work to do. It's okay. Keep working. You can still let them know that you don't like it. You just can't let it be the first thing that comes out of your mouth. To know. They have to know when you don't like something. It just has to be in a very like, hey, I don't really like that. But if they know that you still respect them, but you don't like their decision making or the way they're thinking, they'll still come back and talk to you. I had to learn the hard way too. I was pretty cringy at first as well. I love it. It's great advice. I guess to be honest with you, like I always felt because I had management chops, I thought I'd be pretty good as a parent. And I think I, there's some things I do really well, but gosh, girls are just a whole different world. I lack a little bit of empathy of what a little girl goes through at 12, 13, 14 years old. Yeah. You better wait. Hold on. Just check in on your wife because that's the one you got to buy her some presents. In about three years, she's going to be screaming. Presents. I got presents. I'm underlining it. All right. I know what I got to do now. All right. Listen, the whole emphasis of this podcast is my area of passion, my area, my life's pursuit, great hiring. And so as somebody who is the head of HR for a big organization, who's been in various levels of HR, worked at big companies like Target, I want to hear a little bit about your philosophies and kind of your approach when it comes to hiring. So we'll start there. Okay. When you're bringing somebody into your organization, your team, do you have any particular hiring philosophies that you adhere to as you bring them in? It's really important just overall to make sure, like I mentioned in the beginning, to connect with the whole person. Yeah. and really have a strategy around who are the key stakeholders that we are introducing these folks to. Like, what is the purpose of this interview and how we're bringing them into the organization? And what is the interview process? Like, what is our strategy? Because they're interviewing us just as much as we're interviewing them. So we want to make sure they fall in love with us. We fall in love with the role. They fall in love with the culture and the company so that if we get to that point where we want to make a decision, it's a no-brainer. And that's really important. Yeah, I love that. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had anybody on your team that you struggled to break through with or that just wasn't open to sharing or that you could tell there was something there, but they just weren't completely comfortable being out in the open like that? And if so, how did you handle that? Some people just are not as vulnerable and as good as making connections in the beginning. And I've inherited folks like that quite a bit. So I tend to buddy them up with people that are really good at it or have struggled with it in the past and have taken those appropriate steps throughout their career to build on how to become a little bit more vulnerable in their space. And so you just have to decide like what's going to be more comfortable. Some people get really motivated when they are around people and energized by someone that's like super open, right? Some people cringe and get upset, right? They get a little scared. So I think you have to decide what's better for them and make sure they have that person that they can lean into to help them through that process. But ultimately you want to create the space for them where they can start to learn that it's safe to share at their own pace. But ultimately, if they're going to become a better leader, better teammate, better colleague, they've got to find it in their space to figure out like, hey, it's okay to share. Even if it's about the ping pong tournament or their dog or whatever it's going to be, you got to get in there and just learn how to do it and become more comfortable as you get into that team. That's fantastic advice, Leslie. Let me ask you this. If I ask you to bring up a memorable interview you had, either one that maybe you were interviewing for or you were interviewing somebody, good, bad, don't have the name names, Anything come to mind? I do. I have this question that I ask that it pretty much gets people pretty stuck. I don't do it to get them stuck, but I do it because I really want to understand how they take feedback. And I ask them, what's the toughest piece of feedback that you've ever received? Who was it from? What was it? And how'd you handle it? And I had someone tell me I have never received a tough piece of feedback. And it stumped me. And I found it to be the strangest response because I thought to myself, 
if you are interviewing for a direct role and you've never received a tough piece of feedback, how do you navigate the professional world? Like, how do you get 360 feedback? If I told you that you didn't do a good job on that project, it didn't meet expectations. And that was my first time encountering someone that had never received anything constructive. And so I was stumped. And so that was a really interesting conversation because I told them, hey, I've never met someone like you that is absolutely perfect in their own mind. <laughs> I love that. And they told me congratulations and we did move forward. But I thought that was just a really cool experience. Yeah, that is definitely memorable. All right, listen, I love to role play here. We're going to do this right now, okay? I'm going to ask you, and then you ask me that question. What's the toughest bit of feedback you've ever gotten? I had someone tell me that I wasn't a reliable colleague. Oh, okay. What was the context? How did you handle it? I got really quiet. I got a little defensive inside. And I thought to myself, gosh, what could I have done to make this person feel this way? And it stumped me. It really did. But after I thought about it and I asked, I said, can you give me an example of when I had not been reliable? They gave me a really good example. It was a team effort, but I was the leader of that team. It was a humble moment for me because at that moment I had not provided the right direction and we missed the mark on some deliverables. And was it something that happened often with my team? No, but all it takes is one to show another party or another group how you perform. And I think it's stuck in my mind that you really need to show up all the time. And sometimes certain mistakes can really change the face of how you show up for others. And so it was a good learning experience for me. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. I love that. That was great vulnerability by you. I appreciate you. Now we got to fire back. Come back at me. Yeah, so I'd like to know. Tell me a little bit about the toughest piece of feedback that you've received. How did you handle it? What was it? And honestly, who was it from? It was a few years ago, and it was probably like, I want to say 2015, 2016 timeline, and it was from a customer or a prospective customer. And we had gone through a proposal process for something that I thought we were tailor-made to kill. And I had gotten a lot of buying signs and a lot of positive feedback. And we didn't win the work. And I am somebody that is constantly seeking out feedback. So I asked, why did we not get the work? And their response to me was, well, you and your team, but in particular you, came across as too salesy, too manicured. You had the right answer every time. And it was almost like you were an autopilot and we didn't see a moment of vulnerability. We didn't see a moment of flaw and it made us feel like we weren't getting what we were seeing and that just didn't work for you. And I was really taken aback because I've always taken a lot of pride in my ability to articulate myself. I always prepare very heavily going into these things. So I do, I can't answer all these questions and I'm super passionate about my company and what we do. And so at first, I was defensive, and I was like, well, they just don't know me. They don't know who I am. And then I thought back, this is not how I want to come across, though, and this can't be the first person that's ever felt this way. I just haven't gotten the feedback before. And so I've got to really reverse engineer what I'm doing in these situations. It's not that I have to, like, stumble on words or say I don't know when I do know. I had to think about it. Maybe I need to listen more. 
I can defer to a teammate to answer a question instead of myself, right? Instead of, you know, speaking over somebody, right? And so I rebalanced myself a little bit and realized that just because I have the answer doesn't mean I need to be the one to give it. Just because I'm very well prepared doesn't mean I have to show it. And sometimes I've got to tone down my really authentic passion for what it is I do so I don't make people feel like I'm disingenuous because that's the last thing that anybody who knows me would tell you I am. But if I make you feel that way, it doesn't really matter if I am or not then, right? I always find that it's not about your intent. It's how you make people feel. And so if I'm making anybody feel that way, that's good feedback for me to take and apply. And I haven't heard it since, so maybe I've gotten better at it, but I'm sure it's something I can keep working on. No, that's an awesome story because I've heard that so many times that sometimes people mistake like a really exciting, energetic person for something else if that's not how they receive it. And that's awesome that you were able to kind of take it and really understand it. It's made me better and I've benefited from it. I, ha- I wouldn't say I've turned down the volume. I'm always kind of loud. Um, <laughs> but I would say that I've maybe turned down the need to jump in and be the one to answer things. I guess what I really did is I put my team more to the front in a lot of these situations and became more the proud papa rather than saying, let me drive the bus here because they're going to see me as the voice of authority. And I think that's been to the benefit of our company, benefit to me. But I needed that feedback to hear that before that was something I was ready to do, I guess. And it also helps with like EQ too. It always like sharpens it a little bit, you know, just becoming a little more aware of body language or tone. Sure. Seeing how people are responding to you or what you're delivering. Yeah, well, if you think about it, I mean, the company had been around for five or six years. It was my baby. It was something that like, you can't call my baby ugly. And so for me, like there was probably some level of, I need to take my grip off the steering wheel and allow other people to drive. And I think the company has been able to scale and grow because of that epiphany that feedback gave me. So I always say feedback is a gift. I really appreciate you sharing, Leslie, that feedback. And hopefully somebody can take something away out of both of our stories. That's right. All right. Do you have a favorite question that you love to ask? I think you already said one with regards to the hardest part of feedback. Is there another one that comes to mind that you like to ask? That's probably one of my favorites. And then anything around that connection. What are you passionate about? If it doesn't come through in the interview because we just didn't get there, I always like to circle back and just make sure we finish off with tell me a little bit more about like what you're passionate about. What gets you excited about potentially joining this company or being in this role or taking this next step in your career or even just with your family? What gets you excited? You're able to get excited about something to be able to do this job properly, right? That's right. Yes. And it usually gets the people that are nervous or takes the edge off, gets them loosen up and you know, you get to see a little bit more of the authentic self in the interview. I like to see that side coming through a little bit more. I love that. What about when you get to the end of the interview a lot of times and you say, what kind of questions do you have for me? What type of questions move you? What do you want to hear from a prospective candidate? What type of things should they be asking you that really gets you like, ooh, I'm excited to tell you about this? I like questions that prompt storytelling in the Mm. sense of tell me why this role is open or tell me what the expectations are because it shows me that they're excited about delivering results and then also tell me about the team. They merge the two. I want to hear a little bit about results and a little bit about the team because it allows me to see that they're balanced. If I see one question more to one side, that makes me a little nervous. Okay. Good. I love that. So we all miss, right? No one's 100% of hiring, right? It just doesn't work that way. When you miss on somebody, is there a theme that you can look back on or a question you wish you would have asked or a red flag you didn't pick up on? Like when you miss on somebody, is there usually a thread there that you look back on with regret? Yes. They're too much like me. Mm. We all make that mistake, don't we? We love to hire people that are just like us. We sure do. And the times that I have made those hires, they are a little less. And that is not what I need on my team. 
Love that. So you want the diversity of your team. You don't want a mini me. You want somebody that has diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of knowledge. That's right. I do better with those that bring just a diversity of all so that we can come together and have great results together. I love that. During the interview process, how do you create kind of a realistic job preview of what it's like to work at your organization, work for you? As much as you want to question and do due diligence on the person that you're bringing in, you also want to make sure that you're clear to them. Here's our expectation. Here's our culture. Here's what we're about. Do you do anything unique in there to kind of share and give people an idea of what they'd be walking into if they were to join your org? I mean, I make sure that they talk to everyone, key stakeholders at all levels. That's really important to me because, and I tell them, ask the hard questions. Like, what does Leslie expect? What does she like on a Friday at five o'clock? Like, understand what's going on because that is real life. Take me through a day in the life of what it is to work for her, with her through a, a hard project. And I think it's really, really important that they ask those tough questions. I don't know if it's necessarily unique, but I do make sure that that happens because I think we get so excited about what it's doing for the candidate, but we need to make sure they know all that. Hmm. Love that. What do you do from a technology perspective when it comes to hiring? Do you have any technology that you leverage? Do you just write scribble notes? Do you commit it to memory? Like, What do you leverage around you as tools to be effective at hiring? In addition to some of the assessments that we use, I use them as tools, but I'm a paper girl. I love start, stop, and continues. I use my OneNote quite a bit, but I still do like the pros and cons at the end. I really am a pros and cons when I'm comparing candidates. So I take it back. We found Dunder Mifflin's lone customer. They still exist. Limitless paper in a paperless world. You love to see it. Pros and cons. I do, <laughs> because at the end of the day, when you're struggling, that's what it is. That's what it's about. I like to read. I think I'm the only one that still buys these hardcover books and I'm sitting there flipping and I got all these people on their Kindles and pods and all that. And they're looking at me like I'm from like 1935. I'm like, listen, I just like the physical manifestation of a book. I like the feel of it. I do. Yeah. I like the feel of it. I like my notes. I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> all right. Let's take this in a little bit of a different direction. You said something about day in the life of working with Leslie. I'm interested. You care so much about people, the one-to-one, -one, those interactions, right? How much of your day do you get to make time for that? Is that something that you have to be intentional about? Do you get to do that? Or are you spending a lot of your time in your office strategizing and then meeting with stakeholders? Like, help me understand how much of that one-to-one -one team member interaction you get opposed to the rest of your day. I spend a lot of time with the team. I actually have to be more intentional with the strategic planning. Mm. And because of the size of our organization, we're just under 750 employees, I have to make sure that I am spending a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with my team, doing a lot of developing and helping them through a lot of projects that they're working on. So I think because of the state of the state, that's how I spend my time. So I would say probably 40 to 50% of my time is spent having conversations with cross-functional partners, as well as those on my people team. And I'm really intentional about making sure I protect the time for the strategic planning, project work, and things like that. But it's a really tough balance, I have to say. I got to ask you a question. I'm just curious about this. If I pulled your team members aside one by one and I said, describe Leslie's leadership and management in one word, what do you think they'd come back to me with? They would say she's supportive, servant leader, but challenging. Love that. Ooh, good combo. What are you working on right now that you're really excited about? What are you juiced about? Oh my goodness, so much. So the two things that I'm excited about is we started the DEI initiative at my company this year by implementing an executive director of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also communication. So new role in the organization, reporting through people and the product team 
And she really drives both of those functions. And we have a lot of exciting initiatives. We just launched a pilot where we are doing a company-wide training of just educating folks on the topic. What I didn't mention about groups is that we tend to serve mostly rural communities. So diversity is a very new topic and new space for us. And so we are educating not only our employees, but our members because we are just serving a lot of different new people right now. And we have to help our employees understand what it means to serve new members. And so it's just a really exciting time for the company. The other piece that we're working on right now is just coming up with a new way of thought around developing talent. So we are developing a new set of competencies to just launch to the organization about how we look at the different cohorts throughout our organization. So just doing a lot of analysis at all the different levels throughout the organization, starting with non-managers all the way up to executives, how we look at each level, what behaviors break we expect, and then really structuring our talent development programs to match that. Really exciting programs and educating our leaders and being really crisp and clean about the expectations at all levels. That's awesome. All right, we have a little thing we like to do on here. I'm not going to lie to you. We stole this from Hot Ones. They like to look at somebody's old Instagram post and ask them what they were thinking at the time. We do it with LinkedIn. So I got something here. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Is that going to get us in trouble with Hot Ones? Should I contact my lawyer? No? <laughs> Jeez Louise. We have a post that you wrote, hashtag growth, and it says, I love when I realize I'm handling a situation better than my old self would have. Why did that resonate with you? I've come a long way. When I think about myself as a new leader, as an assistant manager at the Gap Store in Philadelphia, I was the best. I don't think I was the nicest leader that knew how to prioritize people and manage my time appropriately and deliver the message in the right way with empathy. I definitely know that was not happening. And with the business in mind. And I think I've just come a long way with thinking more holistically about what are we trying to do here today? How is this going to help our members? How are we keeping the business in mind? How are we protecting our teams? How are we protecting culture? And so I'm really proud of it. I love that. Growth mindset. You got to get better. You got to learn. If I look back on myself 10 years ago to now, I'd like to think that uh, maybe I'm a few pounds bigger, but I also think I'm a lot mentally sharper, a lot more experienced, a lot more knowledgeable, a lot more open-minded. Those are things that should be happening with growth. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Absolutely. Last question for me. If you were able to amplify one nugget of career advice to professionals who are early in their career that maybe you didn't know, and it goes back to what we just talked about, you at The Gap, if you had to give young Leslie at The Gap some advice that you know now that you didn't know then, what would it be? Besides fold the chinos really well. Besides that. <laughs> chinos, well, I've heard that word long day. Take a step back, stop talking and assuming that you know everything and listen to the leaders around you. Mm. Is that something that early in your career you had a hard time with? Yes. I knew everything. I knew how to do it. I was resourceful. I was quick and I just knew how to get the answer. And sometimes quick is not always right. Most times quick is not always right. You're right. I actually was telling my daughter, there's this Mark Twain quote that he says, you know, when I was 17 years old, my mom and dad were the stupidest people on the planet. <laughs> And by the time I turned 22, I was amazed how much they learned in the last five years. And it's true because when we're younger and we're stubborn and we think we know best, we're going to have to run our head into that wall enough times and learn through experience. But as you get older, you start to realize the people around you, the authority figures, the managers, the coaches, the mentors, they knew what they were talking about. They had that benefit of life experience a lot of times. So I think that is fantastic advice. 
Leslie, listen, I really appreciate this has flown by. I'm so appreciative of you taking a little bit of time with us. They had so many great insights. Thank you for coming on Higher Learning, and we look forward to continuing the chat. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.